Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are going to have a somewhat counterintuitive podcast on the accidental successes of Trumpian foreign policy. Donald Trump is, I think without any doubt, my least favourite president ever to be elected uh, democratically uh, in any country in the world. He stands for almost everything that um, uh, I abhor with his nativism, his illiberalism, his attacks on the weak, his uh, policies designed to help the strong and those who don't need it. And much of his foreign policy ideology uh, is equally abhorrent to me. But at the same time, rather than producing another podcast on everything that Donald Trump is getting wrong and the dangers to the world, what I've been struck by in the weeks uh, and months that have gone through is that almost accidentally there have been some successes or I don't know what the opposite of collateral damage is, but collateral dividends in uh, Trump's uh, foreign policy. And to explore whether this is right or wrong, I am going to call on some of my colleagues at ECFR. What we want to do is to look at three main kind of channels. One is uh, the future of Europe and uh, Europe's capacity on defence policy, where uh, presidents for a long time have been calling on Europeans to spend more on defence. Europeans have been talking about coming together in these areas, but it's been very, very difficult to move forward. And there does seem to have been some progress on this, uh, partly uh, as a result of Donald Trump's election, because Europeans don't feel that they can count on the US uh, as much as they could in the past. The second theatre is, is to do with, with Russia, uh, where Kadri Leek, who is a senior policy fellow from our uh, wider Europe programme, uh, will, I think, explore whether the combination of, of Trump's softness and Congress's hardness has maybe been positive on some of the aspects of, of the West relationship with Russia. And François Goodman, who runs our Asia and China program, um, is also going to look at whether Donald Trump has actually uh, had some success in Asia, particularly in relations with China, because of his unpredictability and the, the tough... Uh, language and soft language that he's used towards uh, Xi Jinping and other leaders there. And then, luckily, we also have uh, our resident expert on transatlantic relationship and skeptic on all things Trumpian, Jeremy Shapiro, who will tell me and the others why we're completely wrong about all this. Given that Donald Trump is currently going across Asia, meeting with all the leaders there, why don't we start with that. And Francois, do you want to tell us how you think Donald Trump has been more successful than Barack Obama and, and other presidents in dealing with, with China? More successful would be putting it uh, very far because the jury is still out. Let me first say that we should not apologize for trying to look at what benefits would come from any presidency in the US. You know, uh, we should not be blinded by what we uh, think of Donald Trump as a person. And by the way, I, if one is looking at democratically elected leader, I think Adolf Hitler and a few others still top my list. Uh, we are in a situation, I get interviews about Asia, for example, about North Korea, 
where we have Mr. Kim Jong-un in North Korea, most of the interviewers really ask me first whether Trump is mad. They don't consider the question that Kim Jong-un and North Korean leaders might have a problem anymore. So there is a kind of perspective within democracies which is very striking. Uh, and you know, we have to abstract ourselves from this to look at the issue. Let's take a look at Asia. Uh, one of the main issues of Barack Obama in dealing with Asia, and probably also with Russia, by the way, was that he had become utterly predictable. Uh, he was for engagement. Uh, he was very reluctant uh, to call off the engagement. Uh, he, in general, when there was a conflict looming, uh, tried to replace any kind of potential conflict with sanctions, with a kind of magical belief uh, into the power of sanctions. He tended to put off problems into the future uh, when we could not solve them, which is, of course, a pragmatic political attitude in some ways, and he's not the first to do it. But this is how we got, for example, North Korea as a nuclear power, as you have it today. Uh, so to understand why Donald Trump could conceivably pull off some results uh, in dealing in Asia, particularly with China and also with North Korea, you have to look at the kind of slide that was going on previously. And I admit it's politicking. It, it's blaming the predecessors and saying he can't do worse. Now let's look at it in a different perspective. There are some clear issues that have been raised by people around Trump uh, in the administration. And these issues were lying around. And even people within the Democrat camp uh, were taking them up. The issue of trade, for example, the issue of unfair trade, the issue of, of, of uh, Chinese policies designed to lift uh, technologies from the US, all of this has been around. We have had in Washington, D.C., uh, a fight between people whom I would call uh, out from the boondocks uh, and who were calling some of these obvious problems but didn't necessarily have the proper credential. Peter Navarro. Uh, one of Trump's advisors, would be much maligned, by the way, by all the sophisticated people in Washington think tanks, is one. Nonetheless, the gist of the thesis that he was putting forward was basically true. He may not have had all the solutions, but he did diagnose uh, some of the problems. Death by China. And, and on, about China, of course. And on the other hand, we have a lot of people who have literally predicated everything on the financial benefits and on further financial engagement with China, which in the next stage uh, would bring benefits. These are two very different quotes. I'm not saying, by the way, that I know where Donald Trump is going to stand. Uh, he's very ambiguous. He's shifting uh, from one position to another. So I cannot make a prediction. But the fact that the debate exists uh, is something that's fundamentally right. And it's not limited to the US. There is a shift a realist shift going on in Japan, of course, uh, even in Korea, uh, in uh, Europe, on, on, on more on economic issues than on strategic issues, because Europe is not a very strategic animal. Uh, but it is something we have to concern ourselves with. Okay. Okay, Donald Trump tweets, and when he tweets, he's unpredictable, and he's literally, he's, hand on, he's got his hand on his finger on the trigger, and I noted that his national security advisor very recently uh, explained somewhat defensively that nobody's going to restrain uh, Donald Trump's expression generally. By the way, he did restrain himself in Seoul uh, about war with the North Koreans. 
And that may be the most worrying aspect of all, because it means he's perhaps trying uh, to gather a consensus uh, with South Koreans should a conflict start. Okay, so that's uh, the case for Trump in Asia. Should we hear the case for Trump in Russia? Uh, thank you, Mark. Yes, um, I have also noticed that um, completely accidentally, certainly not by design, uh, but Trump seems to be handling Russia in ways that have its benefits, uh, not least for Europe. Because what Russia was expecting from the United States year ago, a little bit more than a year ago, before the elections, they expected Hillary Clinton to win, and they expected to have a tough ideological standoff uh, with her. Maybe even a hot war, maybe starting somewhere in Syria and then spilling over. And now that confrontational concept of relationship for which Russia really view all it, used to view all its actions in, in, in the rest of the world, that has now been shattered. The world has become a lot more complicated for Russia. And they need to rethink many of the former uh, certainties. And definitely one of the certainties was that should Donald Trump win, uh, he will uh, adopt a worldview that is a lot closer to Russia's, uh, the realist take on the world. And that has not happened. Uh, Trump's take on the world is fairly ad hoc and mercantile. And they, that makes Russia very cautious because Russia is actually fairly legalistic and ideological country, and they find it hard to operate in such a world. The world has become much more complicated for Russia, and I think that's, that is not a bad thing. Uh, when it comes to Ukraine, Trump has not offered Russia a way out of Donbass in Russia's terms, and he even has not become Moscow's prime interlocutor on the issue, as Moscow hoped. So now, reluctantly, Moscow is looking again at, at Europe and the way out of Donbass that could be achieved through Normandy format and accepting some of Europe's conditions. I do see that Russia is shifting its terms for the settlement. They are not yet such as we would like, but they are not the terms that Moscow has been insisting on for a long time. And furthermore, one thing that is very little noticed in the West, but I think that matters, is how the domestic debate in Russia has shifted. There is no more rally to the flag. Uh, the Crimea effect, so-called, was fading slowly away anyway, but Trump's presidency has dramatically escalated it. Russians will not believe that Trump is out to get Russia the way they would have believed that of some other American presidents. And that means that now it's again legitimate to say in Moscow that we need to improve relations with the West, with Europe, and for that we need to do things as well. And as in many authoritarian systems, um, Russia has a strange accountability built into the system. It's not a straightforward, not Western-style accountability, but the Kremlin is sensitive to the mood in the society. And right now, the court sociologists are telling the Kremlin that mobilization of the population around a foreign policy crisis is not promising at this stage. So the Kremlin is looking for different ways of mobilizing the population and legitimizing itself. So there has been a movement. Okay.
So the third area which I talked about before is what's happening within Europe. For many, many years at ECFR, we've been uh, talking about Europeans needing to take responsibility for the world, to think for themselves. And Jeremy Shapiro, in fact, who I'm going to bring in shortly, was the co-author of a pretty important and I think visionary report, um, yeah, almost a decade ago, seven years ago, called Towards a Post-American Europe, a Power Audit of EU-US Relations, where he argued that the transatlantic relationship was infantilizing Europeans. Every single president, at least since Clinton, has called on Europeans to spend more on defense. And yet, year after year, European defense spending seems to be going down. But now that trend seems to be uh, reversing. Apparently in 2016, there was a tiny uptick in European defense spending. Europe went from, uh, the European countries went from spending 1.44% on defense to 1.47%. But some countries um, have pledged to have quite big increases. Romania, Lithuania, Latvia, Denmark uh, pledged to put its defense spending up by 20%. And the big uh, prize in all this is, is Germany, which uh, has uh, pledged, at least the German Chancellor has pledged to, to move towards meeting the 2% target. And even more important than that, I think, is a change in mindset. Um, Angela Merkel famously said in a crowded and sweaty beer tent uh, in the spring that the time when Europeans could defend, depend on others was coming to an end and that Europeans now need to, to take control of their own destiny. Uh, so one of the, the, the kind of striking things about Donald Trump's language on NATO, which has been, uh, like everything else in his foreign policy, very inconsistent, is that it has created a real debate about what Europeans need to do to take care of themselves in the event that American security guarantees can't be relied upon. And that's also leading to Europeans having to also take responsibility in other areas. And the, the debate about how to save the Iran nuclear deal, how to save the Paris climate deal, and how to save the, the global trading system in European capitals have been kind of rare examples of Europeans thinking and acting in a more strategic way. So that would be the, the third area where um, maybe by design, maybe by luck, there might be some positive uh, side effects to, to Trump's election in the White House. Jeremy, do you agree with the, the analysis about these three different theatres? Uh, no, I don't agree with anything as is my want. Um, the problem that I have with the entire, with the approach is that, you know, it, it is inevitable when you have a new president and when you have a U.S. president who is uh, changing policy that you you get a lot of hope about where he could lead, about what the things are that he could do. The reality, the, the nature of American power is that it is so it is so large that whenever it does anything, there are there are winners and losers, um, and there will always be winners. And so, you know, if Trump happens to if the Trump administration happens to sort of trip over its own shoelaces and fall on its on your worst enemy. You could you could decide that that's a good thing for uh, for the world, I suppose. But in fact, what we've seen is uh, someone who's very dangerous at the helm of American foreign policy, and what is often being talked about as unpredictability is in fact incoherence. And so, when I look at those those three areas, I mean, it's not it's not difficult to admit that there are positive elements about what has come out of the, the Trump administration, but I don't see positive evolutions in any of them. First of all, 
I think we can say that, uh, that, in fact, not that much has happened in any of these realms. It's not, and that's not surprising. It's the first year of the administration. And basically, if you listen to what we, we talked about in almost all three of the realms, um, there hasn't been a lot of Trump, there haven't been a lot of decisions out of Trump. There haven't been actually a lot of movements. Mostly what we're thinking about is reactions to him, um, uh, predictions about what he'll do, changes, uh, worries about his unpredictability that have changed domestic politics. I think we have to get a hold of the fact that Donald Trump is actually president, that, that what he says does have some meaning. We have, we have uh, consoled ourselves in the first year that this adults in the room theory, this idea that uh, it doesn't really matter what Donald Trump says because it won't have any effect on policy, uh, will sustain us through the four years of the Trump presidency, and that we can then just sort of benefit from his unpredictability. Yeah, but, I, but I have to I'm not sure that that's what the argument was in these areas. In fact, you know, I think what's different from the discussion we've been having so far is that it's not about the adults in the room. What people are talking about is po potentially positive side effects from what Trump himself is doing in these different areas. I don't get that impression. I mean, uh, because we don't know what Trump's what Trump's policy actually is. I mean, take the the Europe example, which is the one that I know best. Um, we what we have is we have. Uh, first of all, I would say that your your setup is slightly wrong because uh, almost all of these defense spending decisions that you talked about were in fact made before Donald Trump was elected. So that was already the trend. Um, I do agree with you that he has caused a new conversation in Europe about the strategic direction, which is good. That is, uh, that is an ancillary benefit, if you will. But um, in fact, we have no idea what his policy actually is. And none of the European policies have actually adjusted to that, despite Merkel's beer hall speech, because uh, the adults in the room are whispering back channel and saying in speeches, that, in fact, this isn't true. This isn't what Donald Trump is actually doing. Uh, and in fact, the United States remains the, the same European power that it ever was. And, you, and the United States' Russia policy has not changed at all. Uh, and so all we're getting out of this is incoherence and perhaps a little bit of hope, but we're not actually getting um, the types of sustained changes in policy which would be really necessary to have the effects that you want. There is an inherent contradiction between unpredictability slash incoherence and actual strategy, and we don't have any. And I would say that without actual strategy, you can't really have any sort of sustained positive impact. Um, Francois, you seem to be arguing before that it is, in fact, the very unpredictability which gives power, and the fact that the, the reason that uh, Asians haven't taken Europeans seriously is because they're too predictable. Well, unpredictability is not going to get anywhere in four years. And if you have got to get out of that at some point, there are urgent decisions to be made. Some are on North Korea, others on trade, if I say, in Asia. What I would tend to note is that there is a, a, a bizarre contrast between the democratic public opinions and uh, quintessentially European governments who have complete mistrust in Trump and authoritarian regimes and their leaders who pay a lot of attention to Donald Trump. But I would, I would submit that China is on the pool, more careful uh, since Donald Trump was elected uh, than it was before on a number of issues. Where I recognize Jeremy's argument is that they have sort of uh, 
put their feet on the ground, they're not moving ahead, but neither are they retreating, neither are they coming to any kind of agreement, they're just waiting. Uh, the game is only opening now. Uh, what strikes me, I also look at public opinion uh, in Asia, for example, there was an interesting pupil uh, as Donald Trump was going uh, there for his uh, big trip. And the frontline states that are dealing with China, the Philippines and Vietnam, Vietnam admittedly is not a democracy, but the Philippines are, uh, were massively in favor uh, of Donald Trump. They have confidence, whatever it means, in Donald Trump. They may be mistaken, uh, but they think that he's giving them the impression that he's more likely to defend them uh, than his predecessor. That is not true of Japan and South Korea, uh, where people would still prefer somehow a resolution of issues via sanctions or via economic policies rather than, than conflict. But we should not simplify uh, the issue. The argument you used, uh, Mark, about Europe, that is making Europe sit up and finally think about defense collectively, it's very true of Asia. We have a number of what I would call hedging alliances or hedging coalitions forming Australia, India, even Singapore, uh, Japan, Australia. And these are partly a response to China, partly a kind of counter-insurance, should indeed, as Jeremy suggests, uh, Donald Trump not live up uh, to, his, to his strong word. So yes, uh, by being uncertain, by being unpredictable, is forcing those of us who rely on the U.S. to take some of the issues in our own hands and not to criticize purely what's going on in the U.S. process. There is some realism there. So I'm not sure that's what Donald Trump is looking for, by the way. But one thing he's absolutely persuaded of is that he's defending the American interest, he's not defending our interest. So it's great time for the arms industry. But uh, Kadri, what do you think about what Jeremy was saying? Well, I, uh, I'm happy to agree with Jeremy on the question that Trump has no strategy uh, and maybe not even policy in Russia. And, what, and the UN, U.S. policy so far has been handled by the so-called adults in the room. Um, but what, what I'm saying is exactly that uh, Russia is reacting to what it is in America. And it's reacting to what's happening, not to the strategy that, that is not there. And I think uh, that is having some effect. Because earlier, if Russia imagined itself in a tough ideological confrontation with the West, its policy was quite clear. Destabilize the West, disrupt, and uh, use military escalation to gain advantages, like it did in, in Ukraine and in Syria. And now all these tools do not seem to work that well anymore. So there is a meaningful rethink and, and debate in Moscow. And that in itself is very interesting to someone like me. I unfortunately we all know too little about, the, um, about certain interesting aspects of that debate. For example, is, is Russia now reconsidering its so-called meddling activities in Western countries' domestic affairs? Because if they look at what's happened in the United States, uh, Russia's interference in, in United States elections, that is probably a lot smaller than usually talked, but it did exist uh, nonetheless. I, I think the hacking of the Democratic Convention was, was very real and probably done by Russia. Actually, uh, Putin told us as much when he referred to patriotic hackers. 
So is Putin now having a serious conversation with those patriotic hackers? Is there some rethink uh, of, of such activities as policy tools? Because effectively what Russia has ended up now is complete paralysis. Uh, on, on, on US direction. They cannot get done anything. If they are trying to be friendly, that's used against Trump and Russia. If they are trying to be hostile, that's also used against Trump and Russia. So that clearly was not very successful policy. Okay, so where does that lead us, Jeremy, in terms of uh, wh- what Europeans should be doing and what, it, what um, lessons we should take from all of this? I mean, if I could sum up listening to what Kadri and Francois just said, it seems to me that we have found some ancillary benefits in in what some people call Trump's unpredictability, I call his incoherence. Uh, But most of that benefit is to us analysts because the debate becomes more interesting, which is great, and we're going to write much better papers as a result of it, but not actually that much has happened. Um, So if we look into the future, there's a couple of things, there's only a couple of options, right? Either Trump's unpredictability slash incoherence will continue, and that will mean that the other states will realize that it's not just that he's unpredictable, it's that he's incoherent, and that, in fact, they, don't have, they can't expect and shouldn't worry about uh, an American strategy of any kind. And I would argue that that's not a good thing in almost any region of the world. The second thing that can happen is that he can become less incoherent. Um, He can do that in one of two ways. Either the adults in the room will take over, in which case we'll have a traditional American policy, in which case none of this will, none of the analysis that we'll go through, that we've gone through, will really pertain. Or Trump can take over. And we can have the Trump ideological uh, policy that he promised us during the campaign and that he keeps saying he's going to do. And that will have certain benefits, particularly for Russia, but it won't, um, I don't, I wouldn't argue it will be good for any of American allies. So none of those outcomes, it seems to me, really really give us the sense that Trump's uh, unpredictability and accidental genius is going to benefit the world over the course of four or eight or 16 years. Presumably there's a third scenario, which is that um, he could do some really big things without having a strategy. I mean, most uh, big changes in history have, uh, a lot of them have been accidental rather than as a result of a carefully formulated strategy. He can do big things, of course. Um, I don't think he can do things which will make, uh, which will make the world better off um, without having a sense of where he wants to go. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I know that we have this sort of view of history that, you know, without World War II, we wouldn't have the liberal order. But, and, and so maybe World War II was a good idea. I don't happen to believe that. I mean, it was a nasty, unpleasant war which killed 60 million people. And I don't think it was worth it in order to create the liberal order. And, uh, you know, I think that if Trump does something really big and really stupid, uh, possibly the world will survive, possibly the world will even be better off. But frankly, I'd rather not run the experiment. Um, I think we probably all agree with that. Um, But uh, it's been a very interesting discussion. I think uh, we have found some real uh, interesting developments which are not purely doom and gloom. But I certainly uh, do worry that the uh, the price of some of these uh, ancillary benefits might be <laughs> a pretty big thing to bear, particularly uh, if the North Korean dossier um, ends up uh, going wrong. Um, I'm not sure that we've got time to, to, to go much further with this discussion beyond uh, 
to say that we're going to have to come back again and see whether these ancillary benefits uh, continue and whether which of the three scenarios that we just uh, heard about will actually pertain. Uh, but we have one more thing to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Francois, do you want to tell us what's on your bookshelf at the moment? I have a book by an Oxford Don, and I want to reassure you that it's not sorry Ramadan. Uh, it's Stein Regan, a sociologist who is not a China watcher. He's been uh, writing about states generally, and he wrote something called The Perfect Dictatorship, China in the 21st Century. Uh, it's with a Hong Kong University Press, uh, and it's not a very big book, it's more of an essay. Some China watchers criticized him for not having enough of uh, effective relationships, shall we say, with Chinese society, and I think the book is indeed rather extreme. Uh, but it's big point, uh, if what Jeremy just called traditional policies continue without change, uh, what will happen uh, in China on its own, uh, not just, you know, not in a science fiction uh, fantasy, but just uh, uh, prolongating the curve of what's happening now. So I think it's a useful read. What about you, Kadri? Well, I'm going to advertise a book of fiction uh, today. Um, I'm trying to actually from Hamburg, where I'm part of the Kerber Foundation conference, and an hour from now I will take the stage uh, to discuss Russia in 2030. And my role is a discussion is based also around three scenarios. Will Russia be a European power, Asian power, or powerless? And my part is to argue for powerless Russia and to try to imagine what that might look like. I picked up a book of fiction by Vladimir Sorokin. It's called Day of the Oprichnik. Uh, it was written already back in 2006 in a fairly different Russia, in, in fact. Uh, but it depicts in a grotesque manner uh, a Russia that is self-insulated uh, from the West, also but less so from the East, uh, semi-feudal, uh, still struggling with internal enemies, populist, uh, religious, having condemned both its red parts and its white experiment with capitalism and democracy. Okay. Um, what about you, Jeremy? Uh, that's interesting. I'm on the other end of Russian history from Kadri, I guess, because um, I, I was reading a book that my father gave me a few years ago, uh, which is um, George Kennan's Russia Leaves the War, which is about um, the, the time in, in 1917 uh, when Russia, uh, from, from after the Bolshevik Revolution when the Russians decided to leave World War I and the American reaction to it. And this was the, really the first American interference in domestic Russian affairs when they uh, sent the sent the military mission to the north of Russia to try to keep Russia in World War One. Okay, so I'm going to do some log rolling on behalf of very modest colleagues who wouldn't dare to promote their own um, their own writings, and uh, would recommend the two power audits that Jeremy's worked on. First, the original one, which I talked about before, towards a post-American Europe, a power audit of EU. U.S. relations from 2010, I think, and then more recently, Jeremy's returned to the same territory and looked at how all the different member states are thinking about the challenge of a Trump foreign policy. And um, what's your latest power audit called again, Jeremy? The transatlantic meaning of Donald Trump. 
And I think they make very interesting reading one beside each other because uh, what has happened uh, since 2010, it, partly as a result of Trump, is a kind of growing realization about the, uh, the fact that uh, the transatlantic relationship can't carry on as it did during the Cold War. And yet, Jeremy's report, I think, shows lots of different coping mechanisms for, for avoiding doing very much about it, which different member states are, are using. But also does lay out, um, as the original report did, what a more uh, sustainable and strategic approach to the Atlantic, transatlantic relationship and the world around it uh, might be in 2017. So much recommended. I promise Kadri and, and, and Francois to recommend some of your brilliant writings in future podcasts, but that's probably uh, enough for now. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do let all of your friends and colleagues and acquaintances know about it by writing on our Facebook page or your own, tweeting about it. But above all, please head to the iTunes page and the ratings and reviews section and leave us a review. If you do that and you send it to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu, you could also potentially be eligible for one of the last few remaining end of the world ECFR podcast mugs, which are so coveted that they will make you the envy of, of, of all of your friends and colleagues. And we will obviously put links up to all the publications that we mentioned on our website, which is at www.ecfr.eu slash podcast. But for now, from François Godemont, Kadri Leek, Jeremy Shapiro, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hakenbrosch and our editor is Bulli Goyni. Mm-hmm.